Good afternoon and welcome back to the EJS show on the Liberty Block with Ed, Jody, and Steve. This show is being recorded live and will be available within a few hours as a podcast, which can be found on iTunes and SoundCloud by searching for the Liberty Block. Good afternoon, Ed. Good afternoon, Jody. Hey, Steve. Hey, Jody. Hi, guys. Okay, so in keeping with what's become tradition for our 12 shows, I wanted to start with a couple of hopeful quickies. The first one I wrote down was two free speech issues, which I found interesting this week. Um, I'm not sure if I start with one of them will be canceled, so I guess I'll start with the other. Now, Ed, I know that you're in the legal field. Do you, do you know what the ACLU is? Uh, the American Communist Liberties Party. That's the one. And do you know what they stand for? They stand for communism. Perfect. Okay. Now it makes sense to me. So I don't know if you saw the story that a ACLU staffer attacks a university for accepting Nick Sandman. Did you guys see the story? I did not. I saw the story. Yes. This is absolutely unbelievable. Now, Nick Sandman, if we remember correctly, was the white kid who drove up, I believe, from Kentucky um, so that he could attack some Native American poor guy, and he got in the guy's face, and he did all kinds of horrible things he to him. Sues people, Steve. I'm sorry. I said, be careful. He sues people. I know. I know. We'll get some uh, very good publicity, and he won't get 250 million from us. So yeah, he, he got. Not he getting anything for from me. You're the one doing the talking right now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he sued for a whole bunch of people for the unbelievable lies, but to go so far as attacking a university for letting him in because he's a quote, provocateur in training. So he's, and they even make the statement like, you know, we're diverse and we let all opinions into our school, but he is so bad that we can't let him in. And this one professor said, I'm gonna keep my eyes on him. And if he gets out of line in any way, Jody, it looks like you have a reaction. I just, the kid did nothing wrong. It's like the Salem witch hunts all over again. Really, he, he really did nothing wrong, except have a differing opinion from these people. He barely even had a different opinion. I know, he, exactly. Well, the key thing to me, I think, is that it's the ACLU and we, you know, all joking aside, we do know that the ACLU is the American Civil Liberties Union and they once upon a time stood for free speech. Um, and in today's current climate, Free speech is under attack. And as I've mentioned in previous shows, especially last week, the real challenge that's before us right now is the partnership between government and private entities and how the totalitarians have figured out that they can squash free speech as long as they control private actors. And to me, if the ACLU who is supposedly defending free speech for everybody, if they've thrown in the towel and are willing to try and stomp down on dissent, you know, and, and stomp down on speech and enforce uh, a, a clamp down on dissent, I think that it says that we're in a, in a difficult spot. And it, it, again, we need to be coming up with strategies to deal with, it's just a private entity. You know, the ACLU is not government, it's a private entity. Of course, he has, as a private individual, he has a right to his opinion, and the ACLU has a right 
as a private entity to decide whose points of view they're willing to defend and not defend. But, you know, we're sort of, you know, we're trying to observe the culture and we're trying to be ahead of the curve. This is not a good cultural indicator. This is a cultural indicator that free speech is dying in this country. And just because it's not the government that's throwing this stone right now doesn't mean that it doesn't portend poorly for free speech going forward. Mm -hmm. You have to laugh because in the article, I think it's the professor that's talking so strongly against Sandman who says, I have a First Amendment right to express my opinions just as Nick Sandman has a First Amendment right to express his, comma, but we don't want him in our college. And I think it's a California college that just invited some terrorists to lecture or something. Yeah, I so, saw that too. I think so. The The Sandman one, I think it was the University, the Transylvania University, I think, in, in Kentucky, I believe. I'm not... Yeah, I don't want to stereotype it. Isn't that where like Dracula teaches or something? Well, that's where he came from, yes. That's what I thought. I didn't know we had one. Um, and then, I don't know about the, the school in California, but I think that you're right about that. I just don't remember the the details and the particulars on that one. Yes, yeah, so we have very different uh, parameters of what free speech is allowed. And the other story, which again, I, I don't talk about typical free speech stories because it's obvious, you know, we're canceled and we're afraid to talk, but I thought the Sandman one was pretty out there. And then the uh, professor, who I believe was suspended at the very least for sounding out a word in another language that could possibly be heard to somehow resemble a word that we're not allowed to say. And it wasn't Voldemort. It yeah. was the other word, the other word we're not allowed to say. And I did listen to the YouTube when he said it. Frankly, it doesn't even sound all that much like the word other than it has the same consonants in it. And to go so far as to say, you said something in another language that sounded like something in my language and I saw somebody wrote this article, boy, if we're that sensitive, who's going to ever hire anybody yeah. that sensitive? You know, we knew that somebody got in trouble for saying niggardly a couple years ago, and all the protests in the world that the words are not in the least bit related. Um, I'm not even sure if that won the case. And this one is just absolutely stunning. I don't know if you were bilingual. I'm bilingual. Many Americans aren't. But if you speak a bunch of languages, you very often... Um, I don't know how much I want to go into it, but there's a very famous um, Jew who has a small city named after him, several streets named after him. There's a member of parliament in Israel named after him. And in English, they spell his name P-I-N-E-S. But that's a phonetic spelling. And he actually pronounces it the way that some people may smile. So once you're used to being more than monolingual, things like this are going to happen. And we really need to grow up. So if anybody wants to make a quick comment so I can cancel it. Let me, let me just amplify what I was saying before. You know, thought entered my mind as you were speaking. You know, fascism is where the government controls everything, but private businesses and private individuals retain nominal ownership of things. And we're heading down towards a road down a road of towards fascism where the government is still controlling things but private individuals and private businesses are still the ones that have ownership and 
uh, nominal responsibility for what's being said and what's being done. And these attacks on the First Amendment are almost quintessential fascist type attempts to squash the First Amendment and to squash speech. It's saying, well, let's let private companies and private individuals do things. And, you know, because it's not government acting, it's not censorship, it's not government action. Uh, but in fact, it probably, I mean, on the one hand, it probably is because if there's one thing the left has done and one thing that these lockdowns have shown me is that the left controls the big corporate boardrooms. And, you know, I don't think it's coincidental that Walmart is open, Target is open, but small little mom and pop shops are closed. Um, the Democrats have opened the businesses of their constituents and they're preferring their constituents to Trump constituents and Republican constituents. And just, you know, coming back to what, to the point we were discussing, the left has, has control over large corporate boardrooms and is using that control directly or indirectly. Uh, you know, what is said in the corporate boardroom is not necessarily a public comment and it's not necessarily government regulation. Uh, but if Chuck Schumer picks up the phone or Nancy Pelosi picks up the phone and says to Mark Zuckerberg, you know, hey, wouldn't be too bad if you if you shut down Donald Trump's account, you know, or Donald Trump Jr.'s account. Is that government action? I mean, it might be, and but it's not certainly not going to be anything that can be proved. It's not going to appear in the Federal Register. It's not going to appear in any of the official compendiums of government action. So uh, on our side, on the liberty side, we're faced with a new challenge. And it's not sufficient to just point to the Constitution and point to private property important as those things are, uh, because this is a new challenge and, the, and the, the enemy has got a new way to try and impose totalitarianism and statism through the actions of private companies that they, that they get to control, whether directly or indirectly. And I mean, USC, I assume that's a state institution. Well, there are a couple. There's University of Southern California, University of South Carolina. Which one? No, Southern about? California. Is that state? Do you know? No, that's a private college. It is private. Yeah. Okay. I think they used to have good sports teams back when I was a kid, but that's 50 years ago. So that's all I know. Well, okay. I, you know, a word I heard recently was um, cultural totalitarianism, and I think it was kind of expressing what you just described, Ed. Jody, you're losing a little bit of volume. Oh. Um, all right. Is this any better? Much better. Oh, okay. So I was saying, uh, I heard it described recently from a, a former journalist in the UK who called what Ed described as cultural totalitarianism. It's not necessarily government, but it's totalitarianism run from the cultural end, it sounds like. But how do you, it's, it, it's scary and it's, what we see happening, like you were saying, Ed, it's not like you can fight it with the Constitution. Uh, it's one of those things where the laws are now buckling to culture. It's not like it's not like the government was totalitarian. Now it's the the culture's totalitarian, and that whole idea is now taking over to where you know you you can kill people on the right and you get away with it. It's in the name of they deserved it, but other way around, you'll be thrown in prison for the smallest violation against the left. 
I just, well, and maybe that's an extreme example right now, but it's happening in small levels and feels like sort of that's where we're going. And then you, you know, you have like the ACLU, they're picking sides on speech, which is, you know, what is that saying? Um, when you don't defend speech that you don't like, eventually they'll come after you. And now we have a Mandarin, you know, some professor speaking Mandarin, and now it's two minority cultures fighting. It's like, well, he can't speak Mandarin because it, it offends you. And so now you have two minorities. Now one minority is taking down another minority. It's crazy. Well, you know, eight, eight years or so ago, Andrew Breitbart, before he died, said, politics is downstream of culture. And uh, he was right. He wasn't the first one to, to say that or understand. He, was, he wasn't the first one to understand that, but he was the first one to formulate it that way. Um, and I, he's absolutely correct. It's one of the reasons why it's important to defend free speech, even if we're talking about private entities, because for 200 and something years, America had a culture of favoring open and robust debate. And that is what is under attack right now in the private sector. And once, once the cultural value of open and robust debate is replaced by a cultural value of uh, squashing debate and uh, only allowing certain viewpoints to be allowed to be discussed, the law will follow that. We will get censorship. And the problem is if we wait that way and if we just follow constitutional norms blindly, by the time we try and act to do anything, it's going to be too late because there's going to be a law that gets passed that silences us. And there's going to be sufficient cultural support for that law, A, for it to get enacted, and B, for the courts probably to uphold it. And so now is the time for us to speak up. Now is the time for us to try and come up with ideas and strategies for how to deal with this. And, and even if we don't have you know, a, a plan to win the war, at a bare minimum, we need to rise up and say, this is wrong in, in almost exactly the same way that you, know, you might say, for instance, you know, drug use should be legal. And I know a lot of libertarians believe that, that drug use should be legal but I don't think you should say drug use is should be legal without also qualifying it by saying, but drug use is bad and wrong and against your body and against your mind and against reason. And likewise, when it comes to this, these free speech issues, even if you want to come down on the side of these are private entities and private companies and they can do whatever they want, if, even if that's where you come out, I think you still need to be able to say, but they're wrong and they should be willing to discuss things and they shouldn't be so afraid to debate things. And this is America. We debate ideas. We don't squash ideas, even if you disagree with them. Well, so, I'm much happier in a world where sticks and stones can break my bones. I, I have a lot of problems banning any word, no matter how bad the word is, because once we banned one, we see how easy it is to ban more and more. And I didn't want to get stuck too much on free speech, but you probably all heard that Zuckerberg said a week before elections, no political ads or something. Um, actually, I didn't hear that. I saw something, maybe not exactly that way, but yes. 
Yeah, so that, I mean, he can literally cut off 50% of all the information flow in this country just with a snap of his fingers. So, you know, Dan Bongino was raving about um, the coming coup and how easy it's going to be in the election. So Trump will win by, you know, he'll win, let's say, 35 states. And they're going to right away say, we can't call it, Biden can't concede. And the entire Google, YouTube, Facebook, etc., is going to be chiming in, no, he didn't win, he didn't win, he didn't win. And that's that, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Not cacophony, it's another word. That chorus is going to be played over and over and over until they wrestle the victory. And those of us on this side, and I'm glad you said the words too late, we're not even going to have a place to speak up and say, what the heck is going on here? And I, I'm not sure when that too late hits, but we're really, really close to it. Well, hopefully this podcast is, is a voice against that. And we're going to, we're speaking up. I mean, I know that the three of us talk privately about the need to speak up. So, you know, we can do, everyone's got to do what they can do and we're doing what we can do. Yeah. I mean, hopefully a parlor or a MeWe or something starts to take off more than, you know, the one, two percent that it is. And I don't know exactly how they'll ever become what a Facebook is, but we're desperately in need of something like that. You know, YouTube closes everybody up. I mean, you talk about Zuckerberg says he's going to shut, you know, he's not going to allow Facebook ads the last week before the election. We've already seen people on the right be deplatformed by Facebook and Twitter. President Trump uses Twitter a lot. And I certainly hope he's got some contingency plans out there for the possibility that he and his family and his close advisors get taken off of these platforms right before the election, say seven days or 10 days or five days before the election. You know, I think that that's a real possibility and I hope the president is prepared for it, you know, and, and, you know, stomping his foot and getting angry and threatening the justice department a week or two before the election is not going to change. It's not going to change that. You know, he, he needs to be doing something proactively. Um, we'll see what happens. Yeah, and I don't even know what he could do. You wanted to say something, Jody? Well, I was just going to share a personal story locally of how bad it is in my area. I was asked to speak for a social media commercial for a local politician running as a Republican. And there are some vicious groups in my area. They're called Wheaton Moms. And they have threatened other people. Um, they've threatened their jobs. They've been hostile. And that's the kind of thing where it's, well, it makes you hesitant to speak up. You know, if they're gonna be, and they can get away with it. And this cultural totalitarianism, I can tell you right now, those women speak up and those employers are gonna feel like they have to cater to that and threaten someone's job and, it's it's so antithetical to reason, really. I mean, forget free free speech. It's antithetic and antithetical to the concept of reason and logic and intellect, and it's really bizarre. Well, I know I've said it before, but when I used to read about the Cultural Revolution, I couldn't fathom it. The whole thing was silly to me. Like, what do you mean a bunch of people running around shutting people up and? re-educating them. It didn't even make sense. I thought it was like a cartoon. And here we are. That's literally what these people are doing. Yes. If you say the wrong thing, they'll come and drag you out of your house. Yeah. 
So, yeah, it's really scary. Um, on to quick COVID stories. I know some of you were making comments about the gym story in San Francisco. Now, New York City, we, I think we did open our gyms with a whole bunch of restrictions, but apparently it came out that in Frisco, if you're a government gym is okay, and a non-government gym is not okay. So the virus has evolved to get even that smart now that it actually can read the sign and read who owns the place. It knows if you're a politician or not. You know, it can tell. It's, um, yeah. Well, as I said earlier, I think that the Democrats that are imposing these lockdowns are trying to lock down their political enemies and their political opponents. The people that are on their side, whether they're in government or whether they're in the big business sector, like Walmart and Target and other large, you know, Home Depot, all these large corporations, they get to be open. Uh, it's, it's their political enemies that are being shut down. And somebody needs to say that. I mean, I'm trying to say that, but you know, it'd be nice if the president were willing to say that. And then it's time that, you know, he stand up for his people and his constituencies and, and be their voice because we're being, we're being destroyed. I mean, people's businesses are being destroyed. Hey, that reminds me, does anybody know these large corporations who have really been the beneficiaries of this crisis, well, that and politicians, but with all of them employing so many people and having basically been open all this time, what are their COVID death numbers and case rates? Does anybody know? Like, theoretically, shouldn't they be showing huge numbers of COVID cases and COVID deaths? So you missed the story that every Walmart employee died of COVID then? Oh, yeah. Sorry, I did miss that. You must have missed. That's a fantastic question, Jody. Now, you read that in Sturgis, the bike thing, supposedly 265,000 people got COVID. Wait, the what? Sturgis? Sturgis, South Dakota, they have that. I think it's an annual motorcycle event. Oh, oh, oh right. The headline was out there, I think, today, 265,000 positive cases. And I saw that Christy Nome said that's a bunch of BS. I didn't get a chance to read all about it. But yeah, if it's a Republican event, oh, yeah, then everybody gets COVID. Yes. And if it's not a Republican event, apparently, like you say, where are the Walmart employees, the Target employees, et cetera, et cetera? That's a great question. Well, we'll never get an answer. Um, I don't know. Why don't you pick up uh, the phone and call Mr. Walton? I think we've got the answer. The answer is that it's all it's all about punishing their political enemies and allowing their own their own people to profit off of what's going on as best they can, or to at a minimum, if they can't profit, to not harm their own people, but to harm Trump people. Right now, I'm just going to take it, I think, a little further because whether Target or Walmart or Home Depot, Home Depot, I believe, is actually relatively right winger, if I'm not mistaken. But you really have no choice because basically, if you want to keep your business open, really nice business you got there, huh? So even if you don't espouse their side of the aisle, you don't have a lot of choice but to play their game like everything else. You know, let the government will pick Lowe's over Home Depot or Home Depot over Lowe's or whatever it is they'll pick. You have to play that game. Or in, you know, in uh, Atlas Shrug terms, you got to have your guy in Washington. You don't have a choice. Yeah. Jody, that's a great question. If you want to do research over the week, I would, that is absolutely well, fantastic. I, I would love to, but I'm pretty sure uh, it's not being 
documented. So I don't know that there's any research to be found. Well, here, let me say, let me say more. Question, right? They're not, now if, if all of these businesses employing these, you know, hundreds of thousands or whatever it is of employees, um, if they were all, you know, decidedly right wing, I'm sure we would know these numbers, but they're not going to ask if it benefits their narrative to not talk about that, right? You're saying there may be a statistic on gun store employees, but there won't be on right. Uh, right. Starbucks so, employees. Yeah. Yes. It's the I don't water think, shine a light on. That's not it. I don't think that you should need to do research if the facts are as they tell them. If we really have a pandemic and people really are falling in the streets and we're, you know, but for these lockdowns, we might lose, you know, tens of millions of people. I mean, we lost 50 million people worldwide from the 1918 influenza. And that was at a time when global population was, I think, about a half of what it is now. When you put those numbers into perspective, you shouldn't need to do research if this pandemic is, a, is analogous to that pandemic you should just anecdotally know, be careful if you're going to Walmart, be careful if you're going to the grocery store, be careful if you're going to Target, be careful if you're going to these places because so many people are dying. I mean, you don't need, you know, you don't need research stories in the New York Times to know that, you know, my friend or my cousin or my brother worked at Walmart. I mean, those are big, Walmart's one of the biggest employers in the country. And, if people were dropping like flies there, we'd know it. You wouldn't. It, it's not something the media could hide. It would be something yeah. that we would all know yeah. about. You're right. And the fact that we don't know it, I mean, it's sort of like you know that story. You know, the Hound of the Baskervilles. You know, the dog that didn't bark, and you know, it's that dog's not barking. So I, I don't think that there's any research to be done. I just don't think that those that there are large numbers of deaths from Walmart people even though that store has been opened almost from the beginning. Mm -hmm. Okay, good point. Um, I think we all caught, I'm not sure if we all caught this story. There's a headline out there that apparently Andrew Cuomo, our fearless leader, actually said, quote, Donald Trump caused the COVID outbreak in New York. Anybody see that one? Um, I saw that one, and, and is that the same story where he also said that if Trump wants to come to New York, he forget bodyguards, he better bring an army? I'm not sure if it's the same story or not, but they're definitely linked. Now, I got to tell you something. I had no idea Trump was this powerful. And quite obviously, if he can do this, well, one of the great things, that may be why he's pulling our military out from all over the world. We can bring our troops home because if he can unleash a virus like this at will, we, can, we, don't, we don't even need a military anymore. I think this is fantastic news for our country. Oh, I think I lost somebody. I don't think anybody can see your, your sarcastic glean in your eyes. I, uh, somebody can. This man is so powerful. Well, you know, it was, it was actually very strategic because you included truth in there about bringing our military home, which right. the left would normally rally around and so it's kind of like, oh my gosh, he brought our military home. I'm supposed to be happy, but I hate him, so I can't. It, it, literally, literally. I mean, even it's if he's only bringing small numbers home, they're so upset about it. You know what? I'm not a great letter to the editor guy, but I think this would make a cute little quip of 
Now we don't need our military anymore. That's excellent. And then I saw just one more thing in a, uh, what's the name of this? Black Enterprise. I'm not sure what the exact website is. But senators, let's see. Warren, Presley, and Barbara Lee introducing legislation to declare racism a national public health crisis. And I only bring it up, I think I've mentioned it before on this show, that various states are trying to go this route. And the minute the federal government gets any kind of legislation like this, game over. Because we've proven what we can do in a national health crisis. Now look, here, 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 I've already gone through like the details of what's happening in the Democratic run, the cities run by Democrats, right? We kind of already know that information. But when you look at this, the, the racism part, and when you look at what their symptoms are, when you say, okay, you know how we know it's racism, we know it because inequality, we know it because of poverty, we know it because of violence. And you say, okay, all of your symptoms of this racism are rampant in Democrat-run cities, and they can't own it, so they have to call it an American thing because it's, it's, it's a distraction. You know, I'm getting to the point where I wanna say to the left, you're absolutely right. You have systemic racism in your cities, fix it. And I understand even the, 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 the black communities in those living in those areas, I understand why they, they, why that, you know, this is what they see because they're living it. They're living the inequality, the violence, the poverty, all of these things that the welfare system does to oppress them, they're living it. And so when they hear systemic racism, I get why they go with that, but they're being sold a bag of goods that the cause of that has anything to do with free enterprise, capitalism, freedom of speech, or, or white people other than Democrats. You know, you talk about the culture, cultural totalitarianism. I love that phrase. Um, I will give you hat tip every time I use it. Um, that poor lady, what's her name? Kim Klasik in Baltimore? Yeah. Um, how long are they going to put up with her? I'd be scared. I'd, be, I'd have bodyguards and an army if I were walking down the street with her. I'm telling you, I watched. The, I, there's a lot more. Blexit is not the minor thing that the left has to worry about. Blexit, you know what Blexit is, the black exit, Candace Owens. Right, right. And, yeah. That's um, Candy Owens, yeah. Yeah, and Brandon, I forget Rock. his name. That's no. the gay guy, no, Brandon. Yeah, he's the, he's the founder of Walk Away, but uh, the Candace Owens and I'm forgetting his le his name. Maybe his first name's not Brandon, but Brandon Strzok is Walk Away, but Blexit is Candace Owens, and I'm sorry, I'm blanking on his name. And um, they're doing Blexit, which is the black exit from the left. And I'm telling you, I will. I'm watching it grow, and it's fabulous to see people starting to wake up to that reality. That whoa, 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 whoa. This is clearly something that is happening as a result of these, you know, we're gonna save you policies that clearly are destructive. They're not, they're not saving them at all. They're it, it, completely destructive. And so it's nice to see Kim Klasik and others, many others, it's just so nice to see it growing. And again, they're the sitting ducks to be deplatformed. Yeah. Uh, well, yeah. Go ahead, Jody. I just, I, it, 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 I'm happy that it's growing. And look, last I looked, 
uh, Gallup 2019, I think it was, this country still leans conservative. So if, if our country leans conservative in 2019 and we can grow that through walk away, things like walk away and Brexit, I mean, I'm not saying it's a slam dunk. I'm not saying it's easy, but you know, the, it, it really almost seems like it's going to come down to the American people versus uh, big government and big business colluding. And I and big 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 government, big business collusion is not a small enemy, but the American people have shown, you know. When you're when you're when you're fighting for freedom, when you're fighting for uh, individual rights, it's just saying uh, we 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 can we we have it on our side, the American people, and the, you know this part growing. The media doesn't want you to know that, but it's happening. Well, a couple of comments. Uh, first of all, to, just to give some credit where credit is due. Uh, there are people that are talking about how if there's systemic racism in these Democrat run cities, well, who's the system? And, yeah. it's, and it's Democrats. And I know I'm a regular listener on Mark Levin's show and Mark Levin has been pounding that drum really since right after the George Floyd thing started, the riots started happening at the end of May, beginning of June. Um, it, he has been all over that and he's, it's, it's a constant theme on his show. Um, there are people who see that. Um, I think it's important that we mention that every time, we, every opportunity we get. Uh, insofar as there's systemic racism in these towns, uh, these towns, the system in these towns is Democrat. So it's the Democrats that are systemically racist. Kim Klasek has been making that argument. Uh, we can only hope that she's successful and that she, at a minimum, makes, makes headway, but it would be fantastic if she could win her race. Um, you know, we started this segment with Steve giving the story about, uh, you know, public health crisis, you know, the racism being a public health crisis. And, you know, again, that the left is finding, trying to find ways to impose dictatorship by stealth. And I know I'm, I'm here in New Jersey and I saw a story this week. I don't know if I shared it with you guys where, uh, Phil Murphy, the governor of New Jersey is the most powerful executive in the country right now. And he is effectively ruling by decree. Uh, we have our own little enabling act or acts. And every 30 days, Go Governor Murphy just re-ups that we have a public health crisis and the legislature is not reining him in. The legislature has effectively surrendered its powers. The judiciary has surrendered its powers, except insofar as the legislature might want to try and uh, reassert its powers. And we, we effectively have a dictatorship here. I mean, it's it's a benign dictatorship for now, but we have a dictatorship here in New Jersey. And I think the Democrats see that. I think, you know, I, if you try and look more broadly at what's going on, you know, one of the things that, one of the, the arguments that the Democrats are making in the national election is abolition of the filibuster rule. Why is that? Why do they want to do that? Because they think they just need to win one more time and then they will ram every single thing they want through once they repeal the filibuster rule. If they get 51 in the Senate, 219 or 200 and 218 in the House and the presidency, 
they will ram their entire agenda through and they know how hard it is to repeal. I mean, we haven't been able to repeal Obamacare 10 years after it was passed and, and 10 years of Republican promises to, to repeal it. So uh, yes, they're gonna use public health crisis to try and take over the country. That's what this is about. That's what all these themes are about. You know, the, the suppression of speech, the suppression of dissent, it's about making clear clearing the path to power for the left and for the Democrats and just destroying anything and anyone that's in their way. And once they get power, they don't plan to relinquish it ever. You know, and one of the things I try to keep people away from is the tinfoil hat conspiracies. And it just hits me that the time frame between tinfoil hat conspiracy and too late is not all that long. It's kind of short. And we're talking in a lot of ways where it's almost too late. Look at New Jersey. No one would have believed it a year ago. We would have said that's tinfoil hat. Legislator, legislature wouldn't put up with it. Courts wouldn't put up with it, et cetera. And then here it is. Um, you said I need a glint of sarcasm. I'm not sure I'll have to get a glint of sarcasm on Amazon. I just wanted to say we're lucky because one of the candidates for president this go round is a newcomer to Washington and a fresh face. And I think if we can elect Joe Biden, we will see different policies than we've had the last 47 years. Somebody better recognize my glint of sarcasm. <laughs> because he's, he's literally running on, he's gonna fix systemic racism when he's been in the system longer than, I don't know what, what percentage of American population wasn't born when he got into office. It's got to be really high. He says he's well, once again, he's things, huh? What did you say? He's, he says he's going to fix a lot of things that he's had, you know, ample influence <laughs> to fix. Well, it's not just that if he could have fixed it, he would have already. It, it's pretty clear. I mean, none of us, I mean, I guess Jody is the closest we have to a medical professional here. But just as a layperson, it's pretty clear that there's something mentally wrong with Joe Biden right now, that he is, I, you know, I'm not a doctor, so I can't, you know, diagnose him as being early stage dementia, but something is not right. Yeah. And that should be a reason that the Democrats should have nominated somebody else at their convention. They shouldn't, it, it's totally irresponsible to elect that kind of empty suit person, unless your goal is to have him be just a vessel through which you can pour your power through him. And that's, that's, again, we have to be able to integrate all these things that are happening. And in the past, Joe Biden would never have made it through the, the convention. He would have been replaced. I mean, he probably wouldn't have gotten the nomination in the first place. And I, we can talk about either today or some other time why he got the nomination. Um, I, I think that it was uh, a stop Bernie uh, situation, although Bernie has taken over anyway. Uh, I have thoughts that we can talk about on that. But um, in, in the past, I don't think Joe Biden or anyone with his mental infirmities would have gotten the nomination. And we have to stop and, and seriously ask, well, why is a major political party willing to nominate someone that seemingly has dementia, if not, or, or at least early stage dementia? And the only explanation I can have is that they view dementia as some sort of positive for them. They want to be able to 
control him and use him as a front man so that they can get their power grab through without without anybody stopping them, including a president who they don't fully control. I mean, Bernie was a guy that they weren't going to be able to control. And I, I'll, I'll always believe that's why they stopped him in South Carolina. They didn't want somebody running the DNC and taking over the Democratic Party that wasn't beholden to the DNC and to the rest of the Democratic Party. So you know, they're lucky because they just make one call to the media and the media says Trump has dementia. And again, it's because of the media. Who would believe that a man who is so diminished mentally is allowed to, to do anything? It's absolutely incredible, the whole thing. But they turn it around and they say, well, Trump is losing. Now, anybody, again, who are you going to believe? Me or your lying eyes? Talk about emperor with no clothes, et cetera, et cetera. But they're getting away with it enough only because they... Uh, they set the tone. They set the parameters of every of every uh, debate. Jody, you want well, to you have to re you have to remember, Steve. I'll, I'll let Jody speak in a second. But every accusation the left makes is a confession. Mm -hmm. uh, exactly. I, I've said that to you guys, and and that's that's the truth. If they accuse Trump of being of having dementia, it's just a confession that their guy has dementia. Yep. If they accuse Trump of being a dictator, it's their confession that they believe in in, in making their guy a dictator. Uh, their accusations are always confessions, always. Well, you know what's interesting? Juxtapose the RNC and the DNC. And if the RNC took out Bernie because they can't control him, first of all, as far as I'm concerned, that's nefarious and anti-democratic. But think about the RNC. They didn't do that with Trump. You think they weren't all freaking out because they cannot control this man? They still can't control this man. But I think they, they did their best to try, though, Jody. Yeah, but in 2016, yeah, they didn't take him out. They didn't usurp the power of the people. They let voters make. They let voters have their way, and the voters had their way. And here he's president. Um, my interpretation is a little bit different. I think that they did everything they could to try and take take Trump out. I just don't think that they're quite as competent as the DNC is. Uh, I, I think it wasn't for lack of will, it was for lack of ability. They just didn't know what they were doing. Or, or are they not as competent or not as vicious? Um, I think they're plenty vicious. I would know. say they're plenty vicious, but they, they failed. Which yeah, because they're incompetent. I mean, look at how the never Trumpers, I mean, do the never Trumpers have anything positive to say about Trump or conservatives? I mean, how long have we been conservatives in this party I mean, we, I'll, I'll say for myself, and I've listened to vicious things from Republicans as much as I've heard from Democrats, sometimes worse. Oh my God, them. they're horrible. All right, I want to move to the next subject because it segues in really kind of nicely. You know, we keep saying we need to do something and Trump should do something and Trump should speak up and somebody needs to do something. So Trump finally announced a really bold move. And I know that's something we wanted to discuss. Trump announced that he's taking a good look at no longer funding these cities that are just totally out of control. Now, that's a really bold move. And when we say Trump should do something, damn, that's a pretty strong move. But A, I don't know if he'll get away with it. And B, I don't know how we feel about it. Is should the president have that kind of power? So 
you know, our side doesn't like to play those roles. So I know, Ed, you, you've thought about this a lot. Well, I have. Um, and it really raises the issue of what's called the impoundment of funds or presidential impoundment of funds. Impoundment is where the president, where Congress appropriates money and the pres and the money is in the treasury and it's ready to be spent. And the president says, sorry, I'm just not going to spend it. I don't think that's a wise expenditure of money. And it goes all the way back to Thomas Jefferson. Uh, George Washington and John Adams never did it, but uh, Thomas Jefferson was the first president to invoke the power of impoundment. Uh, he refused to spend money on, uh, it was a military bill that I believe. Um, and I don't know if every president after Jefferson, but many presidents after Jefferson similarly exercised the power of impoundment and refused to spend money that Congress had appropriated. That went on until Richard Nixon, who was the bugaboo and boogeyman for the left. Uh, one of the articles of impeachment that was drawn up against Nixon before he resigned was over precisely this, this power the, that uh, the Democrats in Congress accused Nixon of abusing the power of impoundment and not spending money. Uh, there was a case that was brought. Um, obviously, Nixon resigned, so the, the impeachment never happened. But uh, there was a case that wound up getting to the Supreme Court. Uh, I forget if it was before or after he actually resigned, but uh, it was after Congress passed what was called the, the 1974 Impoundment Act. I, I, I butchered the name. I don't remember the exact title of the act, but there was a Impoundment and Control Act of 1974, I believe it was called. Um, and it basically said that the president cannot exercise the power of impoundment. Uh, it wound up going to the Supreme Court on uh, the facts of the case. The case is Train versus City of New York. Um, and basically, in I think 1972, uh, similar to what's going on right now, um, well, not with riots, but Congress passed some environmental legislation and uh, Nixon vetoed it and Congress overrode his veto and said, no, we're going to spend this money. And Nixon said, sorry, I'm just not going to spend it. I think this is this is stupid. And the city of New York sued. Uh, I think it was the head of the EPA. The train was was actually the name of the last name of the of the executive eight, the person running the executive agency at, at Nixon's request. And it went all the way to the Supreme Court. And the Supreme Court said on those facts, the, pres the, the law says that the president has to spend the money and he has to spend the money. Um, it did not address the impoundment question directly. It was a limited opinion, um, but it's a, it's a really big issue, I think. And I think it's really interesting if Trump is, I hope that he's aware of it and I hope that he's willing to, to take that fight because every president since Nixon has believed that that act was unconstitutional. I think that act is unconstitutional. I don't I think that Congress's remedy, if the president is not spending money that Congress has appropriated, the, rem the proper remedy is impeachment. It is not to run to a federal judge and get a court order to order the, the president to spend the money. Uh, I don't think that that's a justici justiciable controversy. I don't think that's a proper role for the federal courts. The courts are not supposed to get in between the Congress and the president for the most part. I mean, I, I guess that I can think of some instances where that might be legitimate, uh, but this is not certainly not one of them, in my opinion. I think that if Congress believes that something is so important to be for for certain spending to to happen, 
uh, you know, for instance, you know, paying the troops or, or you know, something that that directly affects national security, remove the president if that's what it is. But I don't think that the proper solution is to go and run to a federal judge and ask a federal judge or, or the Supreme Court under John Roberts to issue an order or to uphold an order directing the president on how he's supposed to act. The president is not supposed to answer to the courts. He is supposed to answer to the legislature, but not to the courts. Ed, have you, have you researched at all? When he's saying he's gonna withhold this money for, from the cities, how specifically is that money appropriated? Is there actually a congressional law saying New York gets X amount of money? I haven't done the research, but that is my understanding. Uh, my understanding is he's got a memo out asking all of his uh, subordinates to look for money that has been appropriated to different cities, uh, or at least New York, Portland, uh, Baltimore, and Chicago, maybe. Uh, he, he specifically listed four cities that are subject to riots right now, and he's looking for ways for money that he can withhold from those cities on the ground that they're, uh, that they're letting their cities burn to the ground. And I think that's a fantastic argument for him to make. Um, I hope that he is willing to take it all the way to the Supreme Court if he has to. I think that the power of impoundment was an important limitation. It, it wasn't written into the Constitution, but it's an implicit limitation on the power of the government, uh, on the power of Congress, and on the power of the federal government to spend money. And I think that it, it would be good. It would be a, a welcome victory if he can win that battle for us. And it's a good battle to fight, I think. And I'm curious if, if those, again, if they're actual laws, legislation, how much gobbledygook is in them that may or may not give wiggle room in these specific cases? Because he's obviously not just doing it. He's asking advisors on how to go about it. Um, unlike the well, virus, that's... he's not just unleashing it. Well, that, I mean, that was the situation in the, in the train versus city of New York case. And that's, that's what the Impoundment and Control Act of 1974 was specifically designed to, to establish, that there was no wiggle room, that if Congress appropriated money, the president had to spend it. That's the whole point of that act. Um, I don't believe that act is constitutional. Um, it was passed over the, over, I believe it was over Nixon's veto. Um, I just don't think that's a constitutional law. I don't think that uh, it creates a justiciable controversy that the courts, the federal courts should be adjudicating. I think that if the Congress is upset with what the president's doing, it's, it's remedy, Congress's remedy is impeachment, not a federal court order. Now, for, from my libertarian point of view, <laughs> these problems should not exist. This idea that the federal government is giving so much money the cities and states, it's, it's just mind blowing. I don't even think the average American has a clue how many billions of dollars are handed out for things that we don't even know exist. And again, that's how the feds get the states to do everything. So yeah, we're all into federalism and the states can do whatever they want, but you won't get our billions and billions if you mess with the speed limit or if you change this or if you don't hire the right contractor, we're gonna change the amount of money we're gonna give you. Now, didn't Obama do certain things like this when it came, I don't know, with immigration or something? Didn't he also threaten cities? Um, I don't remember. Maybe I have a recollection of him saying to certain cities also, you're not going to get your money. So all those
those people who, you know, they want to look at Trump and say, oh, you're a dictator and you're trying to tell these cities what to do. They want, obviously they want him out of their city unless it's money. And that's one of those things you just brought it up, Steve, where it's kind of like, well, you, people want their freedom, right? The left wants their freedom to do this, that, and the other that they want to do where they want to do it. But you don't get freedom when it costs money. When it costs others money, you lose your freedom to make these decisions. So yes, you can hold, you, you can do whatever you want in your city, right? But then you can't expect people's taxes from other areas. Now they have to come in and fund your city. It's like, well, freedom isn't free. You're gonna have to pay for the consequences of your choices yourself. That's never how it works though. It's, I want to be free to have all the things I want. Oh, and by the way, you're going to fund it. Other people are going to fund it, not me. I know there's also other ways of punishing states that I assume a president has a lot more wiggle room, like in FEMA funds and declaring emergencies. And I know that there's sometimes been tensions around some of those funds. Oh, he's a Republican. He's not going to help our Democrat city. Or, you know, I think Bush, you know, now that I think about it, I gave Trump too much credit. Trump unleashed a virus, but didn't Bush unleash a hurricane? He wasn't, you know, he wasn't all that weak either. Yeah. Again. But I think that um, they were accusing Bush of not wanting to help them because they were a liberal city with a Democrat mayor and stuff. So I think in, when it comes to FEMA funding, there's tension around it. And I just think there's so much of this money going around that overtly or not, people have a certain amount of control over what actually gets distributed. Well, you know what, and to, if, even if you look back, even since 1974, the amount of money that goes from the federal government to cities and states has grown exponentially, right? And first of all, that's, that's the problem. Really, whether or not the president can say, don't do it or do it, to me, the problem is that it's being done in the first place. But it, for me, I, it does seem a little bit of a slippery slope to have one person have all that power to say, no, we're not giving you this money. I'm not giving you, you, and you this money. Everybody else is getting their money. That's a slippery slope to me. I don't like it being done by either side. Well, FEMA does work the way, right? Huh? When it comes to emergencies, isn't it just the president who decides who's in an emergency? I don't know. Well, I, I mean, I'm going to take the other side of that, Jody. I, I think it's actually really good because it can only be exercised in a way that restrains the federal government. It can only be exercised in a way where it reduces government spending. It's not like the president can just willy-nilly go and, and borrow money without permission from Congress or, or take money that hasn't been appropriated and give it to his friends. He clearly can't do that. In this situation... It's a, it's a check on government power and it limits how much money can be spent. And although it's not specifically or even implicit, I mean, it's, it's just an implicit power in the constitution. It's not uh, referred to or alluded to or, or anywhere mentioned, but it's just another prerogative of the president. And if Congress passes something stupid and it does it over a presidential veto, Congress still doesn't get to order the president around and I don't see how that's really a slippery slope. I think that's a, a positive thing. You know, I'm going to ask an ignorant question. Um, my understanding of the Constitution is the House 
and Congress appropriates funds and the president spends them. But how does that actually work? So Congress says, okay, we want to give a $5 million grant to Liberty Block because they're doing so many good things. And then the president signs that appropriation. And who actually makes the phone call to whom to say actually send the money? How does that go? Well, the way it would work is whatever agency you and I, you know, the Liberty Block is dealing with, whether it's, uh, I mean, we probably would be dealing with some federal agency and the agency would requisition a check from the Department of Treasury, which is a an executive agency, an executive branch, uh, part, it's part of the executive branch of the government. And Department of Treasury would issue a check for $5 million to the Liberty Block and we would have a, a nice dinner together. But how... Okay, obviously the president can't possibly know about every dispersal of funds. That's pretty obvious, right? Because there's millions and millions of dispersals and distributions right. of funds. So now when, when we get this bill passed and he signs it, and then where does that bill go? Like, how does that get to the treasury for somebody in the treasury to say, okay, we need to sign this check, wire these funds? Again, I think it just depends on the particular situation, but or I think the ordinary course is a private citizen is acting or contracting with the government, so, with some government entity or agency, and that branch of the government is going to submit the request for a check to, you know, up the up the chain of command ultimately to the Department of Treasury, and the check and the check request is going to be granted or not. So how does the treasury know which money to disperse? I don't understand your question. I mean, it, you know, it, it, Congress isn't gonna appropriate $5 million to Liberty Block. It's gonna appropriate $5 million for Liberty Block to, you know, produce radio content, let's say, right? And so how is that gonna be implemented? It's gonna be implemented maybe through the FCC or, or some other federal uh, uh, executive agency. Right, and so the FCC calls up the treasury and says, hey, I got this bill in my hand, send 5 million bucks to no, Liberty Block. What's gonna happen is Liberty Block is gonna submit a request to the FCC and say, hey, look, we're authorized under this legislation for to get $5 million, we want our, we want our grant paid. And the FCC would then send that request up the chain of command and would eventually get somewhere into the Department of Treasury and Department of Treasury would be, would either issue the check or if they didn't issue the check, Liberty Block would ultimately file a lawsuit to have a court order that the check be written. That's what would happen. So where does the, the head of the Treasury says, hey, I don't know about this. Is this legit? Does he have a sign up on his wall or a spreadsheet that says this is legit and this isn't? Because well, in this case, where the president is saying, don't send it, who does he pick up the phone to? Like, how does it work? Well, I think those are separate questions. I think the, the first, the answer to the first question is, each agency is enforcing certain federal laws and they're responsible for knowing their own federal laws and when they're supposed to issue checks and when they're supposed to send out inspectors and when they're supposed to do a whole bunch of things. And when we submit our request, some, it's going to go into some you know, low-level person at the agency, and the person is going to have, have been trained and instructed on 
what to do with requests. And the request is going to get sent to the proper through the proper channels and the request will either be accepted or denied. If it's denied, it'll come back to us and they'll say, your request is denied. You're, you're, not, you're not covered by this legislation. Or if it's accepted, then it'll go up. Like I said, it'll just go through the chain of command. Now what's happening is the president is interceding and saying, I don't care that the legislation authorizes this. I don't care if the legislation directs you to do it. We are not spending that money and we are impounding those funds and we are gonna hold them in the in the treasury's bank account that's how impound that's what impoundment was up until 1974 between about eight this is all with the understanding that the secretary of the treasury reports to the president and if the president calls him up and says i don't want you sending out these funds that he has to listen because he works for the president correct okay so if he were to just say screw it i'm signing this check then what? He's looking. The president, will probably, the president would probably fire him. Is what would happen. But he could probably send the check anyway. Probably. I mean, he could probably send a bunch of checks, and as soon as the president finds out, he would fire him and take away his authority to to sign right, checks. And then, then they would yell Saturday Night Massacre. They're going to yell Saturday Night Massacre pretty much no matter what Trump does. They are accusing him of being a dictator, for the reasons I said earlier, namely. Their accusations are, are confessions. That's what they want. So uh, they're going to accuse him of being a dictator no matter what because they want dictatorship and they're just laying the, the foundation for a dictatorship when they take over. Mm -hmm. Okay. So if I understand you, Ed, you're saying the Supreme Court has allowed the president this power or the Supreme Court has taken it away or they just done Supreme it Court has. The Supreme Court has never directly opined on the impoundment power. The Supreme Court had one case, Train versus City of New York, which was decided in 1974, uh, which was the same year that the act was passed. The, the case was decided after the act was passed, but the facts were predated the act. So it wasn't, it wasn't directly interpreting the act. And the Supreme Court said on the facts presented in that particular case, it was going to order the president to spend the funds. It did not make any specific or, or general pronouncement on impoundment generally. Um, it just on those particular facts said the president needs to spend this month, has to sign this check. Right. And once again, we could have any district court judge stopping the president until he gets to take it up higher, higher, higher. Which is why I said, I don't believe that a district court judge should be allowed to get in between the president and the Congress like that. I don't even think the Supreme Court should, but I certainly don't think that some district level judge should be allowed to order the president to get in between the president and the Congress on that dispute. Congress's remedy should be impeachment if that's what if that's if they think it's that bad of a of a breach, then they should remove the president. That's the the remedy that I see. Well, Ed, I gotta say, your argument convinced me about, you know, the power of presidential impoundment because, you know, thinking about it, uh, if it is really just a stopping of funds, that's kind of really from the federal government, that's, I'm a huge fan. And who's gonna use it? The, the Democrats, if they use it against conservative states, I don't think it's gonna be as painful as it is 
if Republican presidents use it against liberal states, because the liberal states are the ones clamoring for all the money. Um, I wish that were true, but I'm I don't know saying, if it is true. I'm not saying that Republicans aren't, but uh, certainly it seems if, 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 if they're really going to be conservative, then they that's that's not going to float well in their argument anyway. And I'm all for whether it's Republicans or Democrats. I couldn't argue specifics, but I think most states have gotten so used to certain amounts of money coming in. That's how they balance their budgets. They have to balance their budgets. Maybe that's a remedy then. Don't look to the federal government. You got you to gotta supply it yourself. All right. Closing statements. Anybody? I'll start. <clears throat> I'll start. So I wanted to return real quick to uh, uh, Steve, you brought up tinfoil um, conspiracy theories. And I just want to say 10 years ago when I started, actually it was 11 years ago when I started my turn from the left to the right, I'll tell you where we are today, 10 years ago, I would have said absolutely not possible. There is no way, you know, there, I would have said there's no way people on the left, I may disagree with them, but they would never shut down discussion. They would never shut down debate. I would have absolutely been blown away where we are now. So at this point, any conspiracy theory, I'm looking at and saying, look, maybe it's a conspiracy theory, but don't shoot it down because God knows I've seen stuff happen that I would have called a conspiracy theory. And also, I wanted to bring up something we didn't mention, the $3 trillion national debt that we have, you know, going on as of, you know, this record. I just want to remind people, you know, I don't, I hate it. it it's awful. But let's all be honest, um, if it were up to the Democrats, it'd be a hell of a lot more. And you know what the media and the Democrats would be saying at this $3 trillion? Exactly what they said under Obama. National debt doesn't matter. National debt's a good thing. All these things, they really just shoved it under the rug. So I just wanted to close with that. Well, a um, couple things. I mean, first, just the last point, Jody. I, I think that the $3 trillion is a monthly deficit. I think it's what we, or a quarterly deficit. Sorry, deficit, yes. Um, the, the national debt, I believe, is about $26 trillion. Yes. And that, that doesn't even count all the unfunded liabilities that are out yeah. there. Yeah. Um, you know, it'll be a fun discussion sometime maybe to talk about how how that amount of, that amount of money requires interest rates to be suppressed to the extent that they are. Um, you know, if you just do a quick, you know, twenty six trillion dollars of interest rates went up to even five percent. You'd be talking about one point three trillion dollars a year just in interest payments. And I don't think anybody reasonably believes that a market interest rate today will be 5%. I think it will be a lot higher, um, which in turn tells me that we are setting the stage for a cataclysmic economic explosion down the road. Um, but that, you know, leave that aside. I think, you know, as a closing statement, I think that the issue of our time and the issue particularly for the liberty movement, for libertarians and conservatives, is the left's attempt to establish dictatorship through private parties and uh, only nominally with the, the help of government. Um, there are a lot of people, particularly in the libertarian movement, who are fixated on it's a private entity and it's a private business. And, 
And I don't mean to diminish that or demean that. Of course, we should respect private property and private businesses. Um, but, you know, Lenin said that the capitalist would sell him, meaning sell to Lenin, the rope that Lenin would use to hang the capitalist. And that's, that's sort of where we are right now. We are dealing with uh, totalitarians that are willing to use private forces to destroy the constitution and to destroy liberty. And we need to be creative in how we're gonna fight back on that. And we need to recognize the threat. We need to understand that uh, this is just a different aspect of fascism, as I mentioned earlier in today's podcast. Under fascism, the government does control and, and, and dictate things, but it does so through private actors and through private entities. And that's, that's where we've been going and in, that's the direction we've been going for a long time. And we're, we're getting close to the end of that road. And to just point to it's a private company and it's a private business, um, it's gonna lead to us losing the war and it's going to lead to the end of our liberty and it's going to lead to the end of America and freedom in America. And drastic times call for drastic measures. I'm not sure what the measures are. Um, I know that another boogeyman for, for libertarians is Abraham Lincoln, who did things such as suspending habeas corpus um, and throwing journalists in jail during the Civil War. Uh, I'm not I haven't done my research on all the particulars of those scenarios, uh, but just on its face, those sound like some some bad things. But um, and even you know, just to show that you know, even FDR interning Japanese, which I don't think was justified. Um, you know, we had just been bombed on Pearl Harbor, and it was the first time that Amer the American mainland had. I mean, that wasn't even the American mainland; that was Hawaii. But that American territory had been attacked since the war of 1812 other than the civil war and you know drastic times called for drastic measures and i don't think that interning japanese innocent japanese was was warranted but um i do understand the the men, the mindset and the mentality that when you're under attack and you have an existential threat you have to be willing to at least consider things that you wouldn't consider under normal circumstances. And we are at a point where we're no longer, I don't think in normal circumstances. And again, I'm not advocating specifically, you know, say appropriating, expropriating the property of leftists or anything remotely like that. Uh, but, you know, for instance, just as a, as a thought experiment and hypothetical and not as a specific proposal, I mean, maybe we need to consider antitrust action, which, Ordinarily, people on our side don't favor antitrust laws, and we favor, you know, businesses and, and private entities accumulating as much wealth and power as they can through voluntary transactions. I'm not sure. I don't know what the answer is, but I do know that if we just cede all initiative to the bad guys and say that, hey, they're private actors, they can do whatever they want, and they can advocate for dictatorship all they want, they are winning, and they are going to get their dictatorship and it's going to impact all of us. So it's incumbent upon us to recognize what's going on and to try and combat it and come up with strategies to deal with it. Um, and that's part of what I hope we're going to be discussing on this show. Um, I don't pretend to have every answer or, you know, even any answer right now, 
But uh, other than that, this is a serious issue and uh, libertarians need to get on board because they do have a lot of intellectual firepower and they do have a lot of, uh, you know, they are good warriors when, when liberty is on the line. And uh, right now they're being used by the left to advance the left's agenda. And we can't abide that. We can't let that happen. So I know that was a little long-winded, but there, there we go. That's my closing thought. Okay, well, I yielded my five minutes to you gladly. We're gonna wrap up for today. Um, I wanna mention as always that the podcast will be up on SoundCloud and iTunes, hopefully within an hour or so. And I, for those listening to this as a podcast, the show is recorded live and is designed to take comments from those who wanna call in either through Zoom or through the phone. Like Ed mentioned, we don't have all the answers and we invite any well thought out suggestions. So have a great day and we will be back next Wednesday, the 16th at 4 p.m. Thank you very much, Ed. Thank you very much, Jody. Thanks guys. Thanks guys. <laughs>